Welcome to season four of How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1933, and Jordan Fish, Ray Tintori, and Z Beale join us for further discussion of Design for a Living. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We are here with part two of our Design for Living episode. Appropriately, we have a menage a trois of guests, not to imply anything, but we have three guests here to disrupt the podcast's standard arrangement in the same way Design for Living disrupts the standard societal arrangements for relationships as depicted in cinema. We have here Jordan Fish. Hello. We have Ray Tintori. Hi. And Z Beal. Hi, so happy to be here. Welcome, all three of you. I'd like to ask each of you three questions. So, Jordan, you first, because you're my contact for this. Who are you? What do you do? And what made you want to come on to a Lubitsch podcast for a 90-now-year-old film about three people who, in Noel Coward's words, love each other very much? Hi. So question one is I'm Jordan Fish. That's me. Question two, I'm a filmmaker. I think about movies all day and I think about stories probably the same amount. The answer to question three is that for one thing, this was a huge, huge kind of mind-blowing film that I saw in film school, probably in a class with Ray. (laughs) And Ray and I were both film majors at Wesleyan and she was an art major. So one reason that I was excited to join the show and also to join it with my friends and you is to just kind of a little bit of nostalgia and a little bit of chance to talk about a movie that I really care a lot about. Ray and I do a show about the Coen brothers, so it's always exciting to talk about other filmmakers. I'll pass it along and we can talk more. So, Ray, who are you and what the hell are you doing here? I'm a director. I have a podcast called To the White Sea that I co-host with Jordan. I know you from the Discord, I think this is my main in this, <laughs> was Jordan was like, do you want to go on a Lubitsch podcast? And I was like, well, I love Lubitsch, first off. And I know Devin from the Discord, so it sounds great. And I also know that Design for a Living is, I feel so honored that we get to talk about this is such an extremely special movie. I was explaining what the movie was to Z yesterday and I had not seen it for 20 years. And I feel like it was, I don't know, Z, it was I like kind of remembered it okay, right? Or the general, it left a stain on my mind, right? Like Z can talk about like the 20 year stain or I don't know, <laughs> it's like it streaks, across, it's like a comet going across, you know, it's like this movie rocks. I wish I had watched it, honestly, like eight times since college. That was my main feeling because like structurally, I mean, I can just get into it, but like structurally, it's like a beautiful orchid, you know, it's just like, so man, this thing rips, you know? I don't want to jump ahead, but I definitely, while I was watching it, I was like, this movie, you could set your watch to the structure of this movie. But also like, not just like a watch, but like, just like, (laughs) it's so free. Every time that you could be like dense and like turgid, it's just like goes, you know? Electric light speed. It's wonderful. And Z, tell us about yourself. My name is Z. I'm an artist and a filmmaker. And I've been asked to come on the show. Let's see. I was the first guest on To the White Sea. Mm-hmm. We did a yeah. lot of character study and we focus a lot on Miller's Crossing, which, you know, is not exactly the same, but it is a film that, you know, at least 
in our analysis of it, you know, centered majorly around the relationship between two men and a woman. We spent a lot of time unpacking that and the homosocial desire between the kind of main characters and how that becomes sort of like a way to make meaning out of the end of the film and how the kind of narrative is interpreted as how their relationship with the woman shifts the two men. That was my guess for why I was asked to come on mm-hmm. to this episode of your show, because I both have experience with being a female artist in a room full of men and also polyamory. Mm-hmm. We have a few great threads to pull on here. Maybe we can start with the structure because we haven't really tackled the structure of this film yet, which is deeply interesting because it is split into, I mean, we could call it a three-act film, but that almost seems to be imposing an outside principle on this deeply, deeply weird thing. How can we best express the uniqueness of the structure? I guess the structure, I would just describe it as it's a love triangle. She kind of goes with one guy for a bit, then goes with the other guy. Then, well, it's not even really a love triangle. It's more like a, I don't know what you call it, but the older <laughs> guy, the addition of, what's his name? It's from Rocky and Bullwinkle, right? He's the Rocky and mm-hmm. Bullwinkle guy. Eagle right? Bauer. Yes. Edward Everett Horton. Which yeah. character on Rocky and Bullwinkle is he? I can't place this in my mind. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Cinderella who lived with her two sisters, Every night, the two sisters would dress up and go into town where they were popular and sought after scrub women. Night after night, Cinderella would stay home doing the chores. I didn't know he was in that, but it's Edward Everett Horton playing Max, the least sexually intimidating person on earth. (laughs) Anyway, the addition of that guy, he's a really important part of the story. So you think about it, whatever the love dynamic is, it's between the four of them. So it's like she goes with, you know, the painter, then she goes with the playwright, then she decides to marry the older rich guy, and then she leaves with both the painter and the playwright. It's like amazing. You know how a hypercube is a cube within a cube? I feel like instead of this being a four-sided love square, this is a hyper triangle, right? This is a love triangle between a triangle and a third point. That makes sense. Yeah. Usually in a love triangle, it's just like about like reality bites or something, right? Either it's like, is Winona in love with Ethan Hawke or is she in love with Ben Stiller? And then she's like in love with Ben Stiller until she's like not. And then she goes back to Ethan Hawke and they just try to make it feel unpredictable, but it's so predictable. And this one is like, she really early on is equally in love with both of them. And you really believe it because the film really honors that with the time that it spends on screen. And then the tension comes from her opting for a third thing. And then the two of them come together as like a dual protagonist and then the resolution of the story is that the three of them are going to be together which is totally i've never seen that i just feel like that structurally is what i think is just like completely amazing about this right jordan you had a thing (laughs) absolutely you know there's not that many films that like totally live in my head i wish i had more but so when i think about like sort of obviously it's a little bit later but like i think about his girl friday and i think about how his girl friday has this really clear setup obviously there's the whole reporting and like detective angle but really that's a triangle between Cary grant rosslyn russell and ralph bellamy and ralph bellamy is obviously just like so he's always ralph bellamy that's what i'm saying exactly ben Stiller yeah. is ralph bellamy there's yeah, no yeah. ralph bellamy in this movie that's why well, i think it's is. radical yeah, well, no. Yeah. I mean, what I'm saying is I feel like Plunkett. Cary Grant is two people. Yeah, exactly. Cary Grant is two people and Plunkett is the Ralph Bellamy character. And so like instead of having sort of the joy of like sort of this fast talking female lead versus fast talking male lead, you kind of get the like triple fun of three characters all going against each other. And then they're sort of squaring off against this fourth sort of antagonist, right? So like this character who is more like the Ralph Bellamy character is the anchor. 
Like another example is an episode we're in the middle of editing. We talked about it's interesting how in the Hudsucker proxy, Jennifer Jason Lee's character is sort of in that fast talking reporter type. But surprisingly, Tim Robbins character doesn't really go toe to toe with her in that same way. Mm. And nobody really goes toe to toe with her on that verbal level. So what you kind of end up with is a character who sort of fulfills that type, but is almost spinning her wheels and spinning out over the course of the film. So it's just interesting. Like if you look at Hudsucker, you look at Design for Living, they both engage with that pattern, but in sort of more interesting configurations, I guess is my main observation in terms of the structure. It's interesting too, that in this case, the Muriel Hopkins character of Gilda, she so dominates the film for me in that way, where it feels like the entire apparatus of this love nested triangle, I'm going to call it like hyper triangle, who's going to stop me, of an arrangement, it all revolves around her decisions, right? She's the one every single time pushing the, I don't want to say plot forward, but rearranging the arrangement. I just was so on my toes the whole time about where it was going to end. And I, you know, mm-hmm. at one point, I turned to my partner and I said, is she going to die? she would a year later if it was the code era he said no you know it's a comedy z it's a comedy and i'm thinking yeah tragic comedy yeah it didn't feel possible to me that it would have a happy ending where they all ended up together and it's really cool that it did but i found myself angry nonetheless and I think that she has this, you know, artist identity that really is very much a part of how the film starts. And she even goes so far as to critique Gary Cooper's work. You know, they're looking at her drawings, which are really cool of Napoleon getting progressively more naked. Then somewhere in the Parisian flat when they're all living together and they decide to stop having sex after they find out that they're both having sex with her, she's like, all right, well, I'll just stop making art and then I'll focus on your career and your career and everything will be okay. And it's this really weird moment. And I felt that this whole mother of art concept where she's kissing them on the head. I know you discussed that a little bit already, but I felt sort of like, is this her way of like maintaining some sort of not a moral high ground, but like some sort of distance and some sort of superiority or sense of control over the situation? There's something really interesting because that happens there because then she sort of is able to make each of them successful, you know, hmm. first the one and then the other by devoting her attention to their practices. But we also learn after the playwright's success, we learn that she is now painting with Gary Cooper. There's like a really fast line about how they're making some of these commissions together. I never noticed that. Yeah. At the end of the film, when she, you know, flies off with them in the car and leaves Max and you totally understand that she's running away from three square meals a day. But also the bar is a lot lower now because her two boyfriends are both making banks. Everybody's (laughs) got their own apartment. So they might be going back to Paris, but they're not going back to Paris without careers. But that would give you the sense that now she has more stability and she could continue to pursue her own work, which might not even be commercial, which is what she explains in the beginning. It's only commercial because I got to make a living, you know, and she sort of calls him out on his work for, you know, being less honest about how he's catering to the interests of the rich who are supporting his career. Yeah. I just was so confused that there's no room for a return to that conversation because everything else feels so neatly tied up and transgressive and like, here you go, eat it. This is life. (laughs) And then she just doesn't have any acknowledgement. There's just a complete drop of what her own personal ambition is outside of her interest in these men. 
I think it's a fair point. But I mean, on the other hand, there is something about the fact that in each one of these arrangements, she's not going to be happy. The pieces aren't going to perfectly fit together. I do think that there's very little mention of her creative expression and her work in the third act of the movie. My only thought is she does leave Plunkett, right? Like she sort of leaves this zone of protection and also like the signifier of like commercial interests, commercial illustration. The way I kind of see it is that she's like Steve Jobs. She plays the orchestra. Sorry, that's Steve Jobs as filtered through Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. But, you know, her artistic practice is weirdly this almost like performance thing, right? She is finding new ways to bounce these two ruffians off of each other to create great art. (laughs) She's managing the artists. I think that's one way to theorize it, at least. Yeah, it definitely seems like she's getting something out of that, too. Like her orchestration is successful and she's proud of it. And she feels really triumphant when she marches into the producer's apartment and interrupts his lunch in order to provide him with the screenplay and says it's a woman's play and marches out. I mean, I, (laughs) I understand that that qualifies as creative work. I guess I just don't understand why if she's competitive with them about everything else, you know, why she doesn't. It just feels like a disservice to her character that she would no longer be interested in her own faculties. There's that funny remark about how they paint Max and they call it man in a derby. And we know from earlier that Tom thinks derbies are you know, trashy or something. (laughs) There's just like a lot of kind of inside jokes about the way that they see the world and share that kind of language between them. And so the idea that she wouldn't be fluent in it or that she would believe that their talents are superior to hers. It's just so hard for me to relate to that idea. (laughs) (laughs) It's also kind of part of the grappling with the effect that the movie is fully 90 years old, right? It's like looking into the blind spots of a culture of which every adult that existed then is dead by now, right? And that's, I think, one of the big tensions of this season, especially, you know, and this being the pre-code era, where you have this level of progressiveness, I would say, that is shocking now, right? I mean, the fact that we're talking about a film with a polyamorous relationship in it is shocking. Well, at the same time, there are many other things that would seem maybe more germane, you know, as portrayed satirically in the Douglas Sirk movies in the 50s, right? About things like presuppositions about gender. We have The Love Parade, Lubitsch's first sound film, which is this very frustrating kind of reassertion of traditional gender roles and one that runs seemingly counter to even this film. And so it's that case where we have almost like two contradictory thoughts in our heads of, wow, isn't this risque and progressive? And also, oh, wow, isn't this 90 years old? (laughs) And so, yeah, it's that kind of combination of blind spot culturally, at least, again, we have our own blind spots culturally that people 90 years hence will think we're terrible for. (laughs) You know, I ate chicken last night. It's very interesting to consider that, you know, um, for example, what if Lubitsch 20 years later or 30 years later after the Hayes Code kind of backed off a little, if he had lived to the ripe old age of 70, what his cinema would have looked like, right? And would he have written Jilda differently if he were to remake this film, right? I find that interesting. Has anyone ever tried to remake this movie? Something I was thinking about. It feels so modern and so ripe for reappraisal. As far as I know, no. I mean, Shop Around the Corner gets remade three times every year on the Hallmark Channel. Yeah. I don't think this film has ever gotten a remake. And I would, this did occur to me that this and Trouble in Paradise really, I think someone ought to do something about that. As far as depicting these relationships between, you know, the characters and the ways in which that, especially I think Jilda being, in my opinion, the most interesting character in the whole film, the way in which the camera direction especially depicts her own interactions with the three other named men in this movie, I found endlessly fascinating. You know, it starts with the scene in which the arrangement is made, where the film will iterate on this camera blocking over and over and over in a way that I found fantastically interesting on my previous viewing, where, you know, we start with this 
series of pans in which Jilda moves between Tom and George, kind of creating a series of two shots, right? Often within the same take. So, you know, two shot with Tom, she gets off the bed, two shot with George. And each of these is kind of this balanced composition. And then we dolly out at one point to create a frame with the three of them. And it's kind of the iconic camera blocking of the film, the one that the film iterates on, which is Jilda in the center. And this kind of idea of Jilda as almost this active ingredient between the two men. What I found fascinating this time was how in later scenes where one of those ingredients is missing, Lubitsch then unbalances things. Hmm. Like her frames with Edward Everett Horton are totally inert. They are just, I want to say boring, but it's all intentional. Really laconic two shots with no tension in them. There's no compositional movement at all. And then in you know the very, very funny scene where George tells Jilda to go see Tarzan, where Jilda is once again trying to create a series of two shots. She goes to George and then goes over and there's no other man there. She kind of rests on the fireplace and then goes back to George because there's no one else there. Therefore, unbalancing this chemical reaction between three people before obviously ending with her on the bed, admitting defeat. There's nothing more basic in cinema, or so we are told, at least in classical Hollywood cinema, than the two shot, right? The medium two shot where both actors are at three quarters angle to each other and to the camera. And yet Lubitsch turns that into an incredibly rich bit of visual text. I think it's interesting when George and Jilda get together, how kind of extra ragged they look in the frame. Like I think he's sitting down on the bed looking up at her and the mise-en-scene feels extra moody. And they're just like, genuinely like not happy with Tom being out of the picture, literally. Mm. And then contrastingly, when Tom and Jilda get together in the apartment, which almost feels like it's Tom's apartment, (laughs) even though it's George's apartment, it's so elevated, like architecture and design wise. When they get together, there's similar awkwardness, but there's also tension. I mean, I think it's dramatic too. Like it's not just off balance. There's tension there. I would totally agree with you that the scenes with Jilda and Plunkett in the last act of the film are really taking a pretty big swing in terms of experimenting with making the film inert because you have a movie like Something's Gotta Give where that character is played by Keanu Reeves. There's actual like interest there in this sort of like alternate future that the female lead has chosen. But here it's like they're really just talking about Eagle Bauer and Strump for like 20 minutes. And I think it's kind of confident in the sense that like after a movie that starts so strong and has so much back and forth and so much interesting stuff, you're willing to take like the two leads out of the movie, like they're in China, and you're willing to, to have Jilda essentially really not advocate for herself for a long stretch of the film. So, you know, maybe the story runs out of gas and maybe there is 10 minutes of this movie where it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. But I do think it's also like they kind of know they have the ending in their back pocket and they kind of make the audience wait for it. And that stuff when they're behind the screen in Max's house in her bedroom and they're like not even hiding. They're on the bed with her when Max walks in, but then they run behind the screen. Yeah. It's delightful. Even if you see when they're showing up, oh shit, now I get it. Now I see what's coming. There's this sort of way in which their bodies are now like united, whereas before their bodies were disparate and their desire was disparate. And then in the end, they're like Tweedledee and Tweedledum, like one's up, one's down. Then they switch places. They're all over each other. They're touching each other. They're touching her in opposite ways and everything feels mirrored. That part is so dynamic and alive that it's just impossible not to be rooting for it. Yeah, when they showed up in those, it reminded me of in Dumb and Dumber when they show up in the in the tuxedos. <laughs> just because they're so like, they're just together, like we're here in our fancy outfits, you know, look at us. Yes. 
I had another direction that I wanted to take things in the the first time we're in the Parisian apartment. I remember thinking about how this was such an incredible set. It's such a fun set. It's so fun to imagine this being a soundstage that's built out with this staircase that's, you know, goes up two floors and all the little children when the little French boys are following her around. And what do they say? Like, good day or something like that. How do you do? How do you do? If we're talking about camera moves, the crane move up. When she walks up the stairs, it's fantastic. Why is it so lovely? Can we, we all agree? We all jumped out to all of us. I have notes about the crane move. I think it's because it emphasizes how that feels like a psychological space and how mm-hmm. that whole set just feels like it's really alive in what it's doing. It's a body and we're all inside this living organism that is their love together. And so once you get introduced to the stairwell, which is not in the beginning, but rather late, you sort of see that there's this whole path and that all the kids are running up the path to get to the room that's full of love. And there's just something that's so much more telling there. You know, every time we're in another space, another apartment, it felt to me, I didn't get any read on that apartment. I mean, it's interesting. It's weird. It's different. But I mostly just felt all of these spaces are sterile in comparison to the loft, which is this built world that's so handmade. And so, again, psychological, it just feels like every choice there is rife with meaning that's supposed to be indicative of what all three of them are holding on to. And that's why that's where they inevitably have to return to. Bordering on German expressionists, maybe. I mean, not fully, but there's definitely a sense that this isn't just stucco. This is almost like painted on texture. It feels constructed. But not going overboard either. Like it's it's just a beautifully fabricated and designed set. There's beautiful shadows on the walls too to add to the lines, you know. Not surprisingly, this film's production designer, Hans Dreyer, guess where he started? In Germany. Did he work on any of the stuff that would be qualified as German expressionist? Yeah. Did he do Caligari is the question. And did he make all of those oil paintings? Because I was trying to figure out who did and I didn't get very far. Based on his filmography, it seems like he moved to Hollywood right before German expressionism became a big thing. He moved a similar time to Lubitsch. So they both kind of missed that train, interestingly, although Lubitsch did get the wildcat in. The thing about that shot that I love is... I mean, I always see that this film as a film inherently about chemical reactions and, you know, how you have stable compounds and unstable compounds. For those of us who took 10th grade chemistry, (laughs) that's all I know. So this film seems to me to be about a stable compound. These two friends who have a friendship that can basically probably go in perpetuity being destabilized by Gilda. That shot is the most, I think, clear example of this, right, where she comes in and completely destabilizes starting with these children, right? They're following her. She's so magnificent walking up these stairs and they can't help but be swept up. And it's this movement. And, you know, she's bringing life and energy, which is an inherently destabilizing force to this household. What better way to portray that than with a really showy crane shot? Uh, I have uh, written down um, D4L, (laughs) right arrow, three women, right arrow, the killer. Um, So (laughs) wait, are we talking about the Lubitsch three women or the Altman? No, I'm talking about the Altman three women (laughs) to the Netflix Fincher. Yes. Yes. Explain yourself. So you're calling your shot and now you're going to string it. I'm going to get a three pointer. Okay. So I don't even know what sport that refers to. That's me. I don't either. It's it's not a sport. (laughs) So essentially, my thesis is that Plunkett is a commercial entity. Jilda says she's sick of being a trademark married to a slogan. And this guy's a sloganeer in everything that he does. He kind of has the commercial imperative in his bones to the point where he's always repeating himself. It's like a repetition compulsion. So like when he says the line that actually Tom likes and writes down and is like so 
florid, but also completely whack. He has to say that line to the next guy that he sees too. <laughs> and then that, and the fact that George hears that in Tom's play ends up being like sort of the plot dynamics hinge on that. This sort of commercialism, this repetition compulsion, essentially it's a negative force in the story. And then later on this character, he keeps saying like, come join us for 20 questions, come join us for 20 questions. <laughs> he's always got some kind of a slogan that he's very proud of, or even just saying Eagle Bauer over and over again. I see strong threads of that in the film Three Women with Shelley Duvall's character, the way that she, almost all of her dialogue is basically tips and tricks and recipes that she's read in women's magazine and sort of like People magazine and things like that. In that film, a character like that is so synthetic that she's able to essentially be replaced and copied by a different character who is able to sort of mimic her mannerisms. So it's like Jilda's afraid of being subsumed by that. And that's kind of what is, you know, like she's afraid of being the trademark married to a slogan. In Three Women, the Altman film, Pinky, who's played by Sissy Spacek, she essentially is able to almost take over the identity of Shelley Duvall because that's her personality. And then if you see the movie The Killer, I know it's a new film, so I'm not going to give too much away. I'm not sure if anybody else has seen it yet. But the character is just constantly repeating himself with these sort of self-help slogans, like sort of hustle and grind, kind of totally vapid sloganeering in the same way. And this is another character who is committed to success, but in a way that's obviously sociopathic. So they'd make an interesting triple feature. The way that Lubitsch deals with commerce in all of his films, I always find fascinating. In Shop Around the Corner, commerce is the language of everything from love to family, right? You know, you have that very ambivalent line from Mr. Moderchak of this is, you know, you're my family to his coworkers, which is deeply sad and also weirdly sweet. You're right. This is my home. This is where I spent most of my life. In this, though, there's a possible critique of this film that I'm, I'm not sure if it's a critique or not, but the way that this film deals with commerce and capital, right, where this is really a rags to riches story, right? It's three people who are round number, you know, what's your income in zeros or whatever? It's, you know, zero. I survive on miracles. Yeah, it's a great yes, line. I survive on yeah. miracles. And by the end of the film, every single one of the characters we're seeing is quite wealthy. They're members of the bourgeois class. And the way they get there is commerce, but they can use that to leverage themselves into becoming artists. And it's left very ambiguous as to the actual quality of their artwork. And so the film is, yeah, strangely, this aspirational story that would, I think, hopefully, theoretically, have landed with Depression-era audiences, although this film did not land with Depression-era audiences. <laughs> While still, I think, as you pointed out, Jordan, the villain of the film, although it's hard to call him a villain, he's more of a dope um, who happens to barge into the film is kind of the human embodiment of that crass commerce. So every time I watch this film, I come away with a different thought as to what the film is trying to express about commerce, capital, and the way that impacts relationships. I think it's pretty clearly in support of a bohemian lifestyle. And <laughs> it made me think of shampoo, you know, <laughs> and how at the end of shampoo, Warren Beatty is just like, you know, eventually she's going to leave with Plunkett and he just kind of watches her drive off. It's very like, that is fate. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is like, Bohemia survives. <laughs> I have a question for the room. Were there any specific moments in this film that stuck out to anyone here as particularly unexpected formally coming from Lubitsch? Anything that you think, well, I've never seen him do that before or things he wouldn't do since or alternatively, 
things when you went, okay, this is completely within the wheelhouse at what I would expect. This is the apex of this gesture from Lubitsch. I have a couple because this is also me trying to find an excuse to talk about the use of the doors, the ending. <laughs> the single most transgressive thing that happens in the film in terms of causing a ruckus is Tom and George entering a room that we do not enter. We never see the contents of the room that they disrupt. <laughs> at least while they're there, we stay outside of it. You know, the bit where they ruin the man's recital. To me, that's among the most quintessential moments of Lubitsch obscuring plot details from us via the use of doors. Learning about Lubitsch in, I think it was comedy class. It was definitely comedy class. We talked a lot about the Lubitsch cut or the witty cut. (laughs) And certainly when Tom says to Plunkett, I love her, you know, I'm crazy about her. And then there's just that hard cut to George sort of almost like kneeled down looking at her like with his face like two inches away. Like I feel like that classifies as a witty cut <laughs> or it's certainly a cut that made me like kind of scream with laughter. So that felt very Lubitschian. When did you scream with laughter in this film, Jordan? Because <laughs> I scream with laughter watching yes. this film. I would say when Plunkett is mad about having been quoted in the play and hearing his own yeah. quote, like the whole thing is funny and you kind of know it's coming. But then when they just pan over to the guy laughing, like I feel like Lubitsch is like, when you see this guy's face, you're going to laugh. If you've been holding back your laughs, check out this guy's face. We tried 10 people and this guy's the best at laughing uproariously. Were there any moments for you, Ray? What moments caused you to scream while laughing? The first time I howled is when he said, In other words, Mr. Plunkett, you uh, you never got to first base. Yeah. I'll overlook that insult. Thank you. To me, the moment that I always remember when I remember this film is when it cuts to Gary Cooper is kind of on like one knee and she's leaned against the wall at the beginning of the scene and he like swoops in and the camera moves in and they kiss and that whole scene where he's like lying on the floor and he's all kind of like tormented and pouty and just like that's the moment where I'm just like never seen anything like this I'm fully in this they'll never make another movie exactly like this again and I can't believe that like there's a portal in time where I just get to like be with these people is they're just so hot it's like it's <laughs> just incredible you know like I love that shot is like like the whole thing to me and then i'm just with the movie i know it's really old but it felt super close to home just in terms of the kind of week i'm having the day i'm having like this all tracks really well i love the stuff about like like i don't know i was trying to buy a white shirt yesterday i was like i don't have a white shirt i need to like fix this problem i'm talking about a white shirt a shirt without a spot without any holes that that won't fall apart when you unbutton your coat I don't know. <laughs> I want to piggyback on that when the camera is on the floor in that shot and you see him, he's fully clothed and he moves away from her and he like lies and he's supporting his yes. head on his elbow and he's underneath the desk. It feels really like a millennial, like college dorm yeah. kind of moment. Uh-huh. And the weirdest <laughs> thing is like that they're just talking so much about like hooking up, but they're like completely clothed. Like nothing is must. Yeah. Mm. They kiss each other just like mouth to mouth. Like it kind of feels like Romeo and Juliet, like palm the palm or whatever moment where it's just so prescribed and it's hot. I'm not saying it's not hot, but it's just so weird to have the kind of camera give you the intimacy of like being on the floor with them there and yeah. being so close to him and showing her up against the wall from this low perspective. But then like to have the costume and the body language like be this kind of conflicting narrative is just I think that's part of why it feels so like dynamic because I was like wait I don't understand they're really having sex they're not having sex I really it took me until they were saying that we had had sex I couldn't quite (laughs) believe it you know just based on being 
born in 1985 and watching this, you know, it was harder for me to wrap my mind around it. This film is probably the apex of, in terms of the show, this might even be the pre-code film where this applies most to, out of all the pre-code films, of which there are a lot of salacious ones. But there's this kind of idea, I think, in culture that nobody before the year 1967 in cinema was edgy or was able to confront things like sex, frankly. And this film is, I mean, part of that wonderful, magical 10-year period or so in Hollywood where you were able to say the word <laughs> and able to talk about its implications. You didn't have to bury it between 10 layers of inference where you had to have a decoder ring to understand it. They're just saying, when I made love to you and the word sex and, you know, first base or third base... <laughs> I was just thinking if you told me that the Hayes Code was implemented like the Friday after this film came out, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, yeah, it just feels like you could just see some like suits watching this movie and being like, we need to create a Hayes Code right now. And within a year it was banned. Yeah, (laughs) it was only impossible to see this film until sometime in the 60s. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Even like the Merry Widow got away with a bunch of cuts. This did not. I do think it goes some way towards the fact that Lubitsch's pre-codes are, were very underappreciated for a long time because they were buried. Wait, this film was illegal in America? for You couldn't publicly show it because you needed a rating to see it. And the Hayes office, the Motion Picture Production Code Administration, specifically banned it. You could show stuff from international. Like if a French film did this, you could import it. If this were a French picture, I could do it. But if it was American, you're out of luck. Which is kind of amazing that it survived. I mean, this is a film I would have think is a grade A candidate for being just lost. It's like some of his 20s films, but no. And yet since then, I think, interestingly enough, its status as the big transgressive one, even though I think One Hour With You is also pretty risque and Trouble in Paradise, not to mention that. It now has almost this outsized reputation among Lubitsch fans that I find interesting. Like for me, I'm like, okay, okay, when are the kids going to discover The Smiling Lieutenant from 1931? When are the kids going to discover that? Because that, I mean, I love that film just as much as this one. And so for me, I think the elevator pitch of this film being so beguiling, right? Three people who love each other very much. 1933, bam, you're in. You know, Maurice Chevalier singing about comparing his devotion to the army with his devotion with sleeping with dozens of women has less of a ring to it. So I find that interesting. Hey, Chevalier is amazing. This is me and Jordan learned this in film school, right, Jordan? I feel like that was one of my big takeaways from the film program that we went to. It was like anytime Maurice Chevalier showed oh, up, yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah. this is better than anything, any of these other movies. I mean, the sentence that kind of rings out in my head when I watch some of this stuff is just, this is proof that everyone knew better and has known better for decades. Just like anytime you're like, oh, like there really was like this return to normalcy. There really was this narrowing of what could be done. And of course, obviously there's great examples mm-hmm. of people getting around that with illusion and inference. And that's interesting as well. But like you just see something like this, that's just so white hot and self-possessed. And it's like, it is subversive. I think that's the main thing. It's like, I'm not like a huge fan of Last Picture Show. I'm not like obsessed with it. But like then I see something like this and I'm like, and I don't know why I had to like cast aspersions on that. But like, I don't know, somehow like it comes to mind as an example of something that I think is like a little bit less than its reputation. See, you mentioned the ending in all caps. That's what I imagined the case of how you said it. And this is probably a good time to talk about how the ending works, right? Because the film resolves in a completely unique way, right? Where we have a reaffirmation of this polyamorous relationship. What do you think happens next for the characters? (laughs) What do you think we're supposed to take away from that ending? I'm very curious. Well, I think it's partly what you are saying, that they're seeking this kind of unstable bond that the three of them can continue to energize each other. I think that it's a combination of that. And then it also feels like they've discovered compersion. 
you know, and compersion is like the idea that it's the flip side of jealousy when like you're watching two other people experience joy and rather than feeling distant and upset by it, you feel like more pleasure, your own pleasure is elevated by that. And it's sort of like a compassionate empathy for romantic experience. And so I think that you see that in that her kissing one and then kissing the other and then them all holding each other in the car. So that the setup is just that rather than constantly pushing each other out, they're going to be able to invite each other in. I love how the ending repeats that motif that's throughout the film where characters say one thing and do the opposite. Right. That's a refrain that the film returns to. And the film ends with them all saying no sex and then kissing each other, not on the head anymore, on the forehead, but on the mouth. They're not going to listen to the no sex part. Didn't in your last episode, one of you pointed out that they don't actually say no sex. They just say there's one thing that has to be understood. I know. Yes, we know. It's a gentleman's agreement. We already know that she's not a gentleman and none of them are gentlemen. So. Mm-hmm. This ending kind of reminds me of the ending of Some Like It Hot. I think in our comedy class, that was another film where we learned, you know, our professor basically said, sometimes a comedy ends the moment that it just cannot continue. Like the movie <laughs> ends when the contradictions kind of reach their peak. That's like a great way to end a movie, especially a comedy. And just for me, the final kind of like firework of the movie is just when they say, can you still say rotten? And she just like punches it so hard. It's so <laughs> guttural and primal. It's here, Jilla. Can you still say rotten? Rotten! <laughs> She's still fully like anarchic. Whatever is contained in that line reading, the way she says it is like timeless and is fully like fuck everything. The fact that she's able to summon that with so much sincerity at the end, like kind of tells you like everything you need. She overmodulates the mic. Sounds like a DIY recording almost. This is actually something that I discussed with Jennifer Leaguer on the Love Parade episode is that the mics at the time were not well designed for especially higher pitched voices. They basically favored men. Men could modulate all they want. Women had to control their voice a lot more to fit into those very narrow pickup patterns of the mics, which is very interesting. Sexism in miking. I found the ending an interesting riff on the Trouble in Paradise ending, actually, because the early, especially the Chevalier musicals, usually end on a sort of reaffirmation of the societal order. Smiling Lieutenant, marriage, one hour with you, also marriage, etc. Trouble in Paradise begins a trend of ending on two characters, in that case, rejecting the societal order. And in this one, it's a more full-throated rejection, right? It's not a rejection of, it's even a rejection of the classic ending of two characters riding off to the night. It's three characters riding off to the night. And they're completely unapologetic about it. And they're going to go back to their parents. Asian bohemian apartment and live life of sin, which you know feels like a weirdly perfect resolution to the tension of the first half of this kind of period in Lubitsch's career. Should have ended with her painting a marriage portrait of the three of them. <laughs> no, because she also in the play talks about how she hates marriage, you know, like as an institution, which was so nice <laughs> to hear her say. I wanted to say one other thing that I thought was really fascinating. And I don't know Lubitsch's work enough to know if this is a theme or not, but it does feel like because she's the main character and she's this deep character, it's super interesting that there's no other like female bodies in the film. And maybe Mm. we see some kind of housekeeper for like a split second, but even the laundress is spoken of, but unseen. I mean, I know that there's this party at the end with Eagle Bauer and all the extras, but there's no shots that are, there's no other female characters. I felt like the moments that were the most exciting in the film to me were those moments when she was throwing herself alone in the bed. 
Mm. And, you know, it's funny. There's like dust. Yeah, the dust is so good. <laughs> it's great. But then later there is no dust because I guess maybe she's cleaning or they're all cleaning. I don't know what or it's just different. They have the money. <laughs> but still, every time she throws herself in the bed, she's so in her body. I guess what I'm trying to formulate a question about labor and artistic labor and if Lubitsch is cynical about artistic labor, because thinking about how she sort of doesn't make her work well, okay, maybe it's freeing in that she is free from work. If you don't see art as something that you get to do, but instead it's something that you have to do, then you look at Tom and George and neither of them seem particularly inspired. It seems a little bit like she put them up to it and now they're doing well. But I guess I'm wondering whether or not she's actually been freed from her domestic labor by being unglued from her position in, you know, capitalism as the caretaker of the home. And if part of that means that she can't make the artwork because that's just work, too. It's interesting that there's the scenes between Tom and George where they say this woman and sort of love itself shouldn't come between our friendship and also our great work. But then there's another scene where I believe one of them says to Jilda, like this connection we have is greater than like all the art in the world or all the scripts or all the paintings. It does seem like they are more interested in just like freedom as opposed to like creation for its own sake, or at least that's like a suggestion. Yeah, it never feels like, you know, the artistry in big quotes in this film is central to what the film is doing. Lubitsch's self-image of himself as an artist has always been a really unexplored territory. I think like most Hollywood filmmakers of his time, he didn't really see himself as a capital A artist, even though we know he took the craft seriously. I mean, it's like the famous John Ford quote, it's a job of work. That was kind of the not totally dissimilar to a lot of the sentiments expressed by many Hollywood directors at the time. I mean, we know he had looked down on self-important artists like everyone else in the world. He thought Joseph von Sternberg was a boor who took himself too seriously. But yeah, the question of his relationship, I mean, even every other time he's depicted art, like to be or not to be, regardless of the heroic acts they do, every single character in that film who does art is a fool. That uncertain feeling, modern art is equated with kind of psychological quackery. And so he seems to be, I mean, I think he's a populist <laughs> in the sense of somewhat buys into this idea of, you know, kind of down to earth with the people creation of art when you need to create art. Really fascinating. And yet, like, his entire life was work, right? He was notoriously an absentee husband, not an absentee father. Actually, he was apparently a very good dad, but he was an absentee husband. And I think one of his wives said his mistress was his work, right? He just spent all his day working on his scripts, making his movies, editing his movies. He was one of the few Hollywood filmmakers who sat every moment in the editing suite. He cut his own films or he worked with an editor like very closely? He cut them in all but name, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. where he had an editor. He probably would have edited it himself with maybe an assistant if he had had the ability to do it in the sense of union rules, etc. Yeah, I know from the beginning to his last film, he was in the editing room the whole time directing the edits and timing them out and calling the shots. That shows his dedication, I guess. He's a man of contradictions, an essay about Ernst Lubitsch. Um. I'll just add that I was thinking about it, and it's interesting that the film starts in a train car with the characters falling asleep. I think in the first shot, it might be actually a moving set rolling sideways. It might be rear projection. Definitely like when we cut back after that initial shot, it's definitely rear projection, but very beautiful set work to simulate a train. But like the train's going sideways and they're asleep. And we are introduced to the three of them kind of without English dialogue for a while. It's interesting then that the movie ends in a car also with rear projection, but it's going forward and the characters are as alive as possible. I mean, they're like screaming their heads off. Mm -hmm. The contrast of the first scene and the end scene and the vehicles that they're in seems worth noting. To me, I really lock in with that Dalian on that kiss. And I really like 
I punch out when she says rotten as a fully satisfied viewer. And in the middle, the thing that stands out to me the most is the line reading when Gary Cooper says, it's hard to believe I loved you both. (laughs) It's so great. I could have seen so much more of that, honestly, of just the emotional spin he puts on that. And just that idea of like one corner of a love triangle at a certain point, really saying that in earnesty to both people that they feel completely abandoned by. That's going to leave a lasting impression on me. There's kind of an acknowledgement of real emotional intimacy between these two men that is very rare in films of this era. Seriously. Yeah. Even if we're not invited to see them as lovers, we're invited to see them as two people who deeply love each other, which I find very touching. I really enjoy that male intimacy as well. And there's something really touching about the punch and then the drinking afterwards. Yeah. And the way that that it's sort of kneaded out and controlled and calm. It's like, don't rush it. We're going to make this one into a two shot. You know, I don't know. It just, there's something there that just feels very rich. And maybe it's the first scene without her where it doesn't feel like it's about her. Well, thank you so much, the three of you, for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Where can our wonderful listeners find your work? Yeah, definitely check out our podcast, To the White Sea. It's about an unproduced Coen Brothers script from 1998 that's a completely dialogue-free, after page 11, blockbuster, like, big-budget action film. And we're reading the script two pages at a time. Big recent development is the script we were reading was riddled with missing pages. And through our listeners, actually, got in touch with the Coen Brothers, and we got the missing pages. So now we are reading a complete script that no one's ever read before on our show. And we're about to release episode 20. It's a great time to get into To the White Sea. And Z, where can we find your work? Oh, currently you could find it on a very unupdated website, which is just my name, Z-B-E-H-L dot U-S and follow me on Instagram. Well, if you update it within the next two months, let me know and I'll like AI your voice to say, I just updated it. You can see all my new work on there. But thank you so much, everyone. This has been such a fun recording. I can't wait to put it out in the world. And this is big momentous occasion. It's our last recording of season four. We've recorded almost all of season five and most of the postscript season two. So I think we're running 28 episodes ahead right now. So hooray. Amazing. Congrats, Devin. Next week, Eric Dienstfrey joins us to discuss the sound recording technology of The Merry Widow. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Griffin Scheel was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 